It's the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode 86. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and concealed carriers and law enforcement officers. To give you both angles of discussion, today I am joined by the one and only Eric Gellhouse. And we are going to talk red dot sites, specifically two with an enclosed emitter. First, today's episode is brought to you by KSG Armory, high quality handmade Kydex holsters and accessories made in the USA. Check them out at ksgarmory.com. CCW safe. Off-Duty 10 will get you 10% off your membership at checkout. The most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. And as always, honorary sponsor, EDC Belt Company at edcbeltco.com. Right, guys and gals, I got through that intro quick. Let's go ahead and bring in our guest. Eric Gellhouse is back. <laughs> yes. You were Good evening. Ke- yeah, you were catching up with one uh, Daryl Bulky on uh, podcast appearances and uh, not quite tied with Haney, but uh, but you're, we're getting there. So, so I, I'm a guest on Haney's podcast. Is that what it is? Yeah, for the third time now or fourth, I think. I third. <laughs> third, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Haney. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a... And that story just will not die. Uh, but anywho, so I pitched it in the pre-show. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about red dots, and uh, you know we've talked, we've we've danced around it a couple of times before. But uh, from everything I see on social media, and you know, of course, I follow you like a fanboy. So you're welcome. Um, I'm I'm traumatized. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a medication there's an ointment i think now no the (laughs) the uh the thing i'm looking at is a a lot of what i'm seeing in the industry is um this perpetual narrative of more faster more better more accurate which is all good right uh i'm not seeing the operational side of it to the degree that i had hoped um and i'm talking you know periods of limited visibility, inclement weather, building searches where you're going from light source to no light to back to really bright. All of these things that uh, I think we kind of overlook in the implementation of red dots, or maybe we're not overlooking it, but just people aren't talking about it or talking about how they uh, do that. And I wanted to kind of dive into um, you're running enclosed emitter optics now, right? Yeah, pretty much have been for work since uh, the point, the original endpoint acro hit the street. Okay. Um, so summer of 2019, not too long before I retired from full-time law enforcement, but I still do part-time stuff with the sheriff's office, working court security. So I still have to go to the range to do all the qualifications with it. Right. And, uh, and with your, your new, well, it's not new now, is it right? That the new uh, gig of, editor at American cop magazine. You're, you're doing well, we're a seven, lot. We're seven months into, in, into being a gun writer again. So I used to be able to say I was a former gun writer and the meetings were on Friday night. Um, but yeah, no, now I'm back to being a gun writer and all the bad stuff that goes with it. 
uh, been teaching a gun site for several years. And after I retired, I spun up my own company. So Cougar Mountain Solutions. Love it. Yes. And it has uh, nothing to do with two-legged critters. It has to do with an actual terrain feature named after a large cat. Right. Right. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I just caught that and I've been reading your social media for like the better part of two years and I just caught what you said. So thanks for I that. I didn't think of that when I did it, but a bunch of other people did. <laughs> mm. Well, it would be age appropriate for both of us at this point. So there we go. Um, but yeah, uh, and I see a lot of stuff you're doing with, with low light stuff and in my very limited now, uh, although more than some experience with red dots, low lights where things get really interesting with the implement implementation of a pistol mounted red dot. And it's, it seems to be the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about because, you know, look at my split times, right? Like, cool. I get it. But I have searched buildings for the better part of the last 22 years. So kind of an important caveat and some issues that, that, that kind of need to be talked about. So, so first off you got the MPS, you got the Acro P2 Mm -hmm. and they both kind of exist in their own space. So let's talk some of the pros and cons with first off the MPS. So Steiner MPS, I I got it at a pretty screaming deal um, earlier this year. I think it was about 425. The good news is, apparently, more often than not, they'll match up to an aim point, aim point plate. Not not exclusively though, right? So we are finding some some plates or some models of the MPS that don't match up. Uh, top mounted battery on it, controls on the left hand side of it, fairly positive up at you know positive or increase power down buttons. I haven't measured the window, but kind of subjectively it looks like the window is at least as big as that on a t- on a acro p1 p2 maybe a hair bigger um not as many settings for the power up power down settings on it battery's a little bit smaller i think it's a 1625 battery i could be wrong that that one don't quote me on um the battery cap I'm thinking sometime soon we're going to see an aftermarket manufacturer come out with a battery cap to replace the factory one. So far, and I, I don't have a whole lot of time with it to, to bless it. But I know guys who do. I'm happy with it. Okay. Um, even on, even on a Glock, I'm happy with it. Um, How much curve was there between uh, like, did you have to go full on suppressor mount sites or, or suppressor height sites? Uh and was there a was there a bigger learning curve with it or so I have it on a Glock 19, which is a which is a spare gun for me. It's not mm-hmm. not a work gun. The curve there was the difference in the grip angle on the Glocks from so, from the MMPs. So that's the extent of the curve. Wow. Um, in terms of picking up the dot, it's no different than picking up the dot on the acro. Visually, it's just the grip angle on the frame. That's the difference. Yeah. That, that was one of the first optics that I, I really put some, a a little bit of time in with. And what I found was versus running a full suppressor height site with mounts and all this other stuff, I was really quick to pick up the dot 
because mm -hmm. it wasn't that much pronounced over standard height sights. And one of the guns I shot actually had standard, like regular Glock sights on it. And it was like, Oh, I'm looking for sights. There's a dot press the trigger. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as steep a curve as I've seen with some of the, you know, reflective emitters or the yeah. open emitter optics. Um, That's an interesting point. ATEI was probably the first ones to do it mm -hmm. when they started machining the slides for the Acro, where they came out with their shim sight. Yeah. That is damn near a stock height. It's a hair bigger. I can't tell you how many thousands of an inch taller than a stock sight it is. It was like but 10. It, it puts the sights in the plane where you're already used to see them, which means the dots in the plane where you're already used to seeing it. Mm -hmm. um, the the MMP shield, at least the performance center ones, yeah. they've cut those slides low enough that you can use the stock sights in, in them. So now with those, you don't have the, you don't have the visual offset. I'm going to say for lack of a better description, where that dot sitting a lot higher and you have to present it differently to pick it up. It's, it's where you're used to looking is where the dots appearing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have several friends now running the MPS and they all say the same thing. Battery cap is a little, little sketchy. Um, and the mounts can be a bit hit or miss. But overall, they're all really pleased. And Stein, the clarity of Steiner's glass is really good. Yeah, so. this is about the third optic I've had from them. It's the first, first pistol one. Uh, but yeah, it, they make very nice glass. I'm very happy with their glass. So let's talk uh, Acro P2, because you and I are both uh, proud parents of an Acro P2. <laughs> After a lengthy adoption process, right? Yes, very lengthy adoption process. So caveat, I worked for Aimpoint for about five years. Uh, I was on their military pro staff in the late OOs. I really like their product. The P1 had, had some birthing pains, a lot of it being the battery life, battery size, uh, the design of the battery uh, cap. When they got the P2, I think they got it right. The problem was just how long it took them to get it out there. So now that it's out there and as, as they're coming in, you know, based on supply chain stuff, I'm real happy with it. Um, I've my original P1, I think is going to be replaced here shortly uh, because the base was damaged, but it's because when I would teach classes, I would show guys how to clear stoppages by racking off the optic. So I've got a bunch of chunks of metal at the, off the front of the optic, which eventually damaged the base apparently. And when I went to put it on a new cut slide, it wouldn't, wouldn't made up and mount on the slide without a bit of slop. So I'm just waiting on it to get back and I'll send it off to aim point for replacement. Um, they fixed the battery cap issues been fixed. Any concerns about the controls being maybe a little mushy, either the zero adjustments or the power up power down has been fixed. Jeff Cahill at Tango Down has come out with a guard to fit on the front of it. So if you do end up racking it, you know, racking it off of other objects, not your hands, um, it sits out far enough that it protects the glass and that the housing of the site from getting buggered up and banged up. Um, Jeff's got two versions of it. One, if you're mounting on stuff like on an MOS plate or a core plate, and then one, if you're mounting the Acro um, on a direct mill to the slide, either you've had like ATI do it, or you're getting one of those unicorn slides out there that are coming from the factory cut for the Acro. Having a lot of experience with the, the open emitter optics, what's your take on 
I, I hesitate to say one's better than the other, or maybe one lends to training a little easier or whatever, but, but what's your take between the two? If you have to pick open emitter or closed emitter. So from a cop perspective, I'd want closed emitter. Okay. Because of being out in the inclement weather, seeing guys go prone and have that, the open emitter optics scoop up, scoop up chunks of mother earth. Right. Right. Um, people express the concern about rain. I don't see it as a big deal. And when I do them out, the optics malfunction parts of my classes, I take a squirt bottle and I'll, you know, fill water up in your open emitter optic and have you draw and shoot. All right. You may get a little weird sight picture there, depending on where the water beads are. Once you fire that shot and that the slide cycles, you're back to looking at your dot again, where it's supposed to be. It's more just to me, the crud creeping down inside of it and crud getting on the lens. Um, from a decent normal human perspective, right? Concealed carrier, maybe investigations where you're not trying to look like the police. There may not be much of a trade-off, but if you're carrying right next to your skin, you know, you're going to have skin flake off down in there. You're going to have fur flake off down in there. Blow the thing out every so often, like you should be doing anyway. Right. My big deal when they, they started to really push the enclosed emitter was just the environmentals. I don't know how many times you've dumped a full 32 ounce Coca-Cola down your gun in a police car. Seen that movie. Yeah. Done it. Yeah. I think, I think everybody sets it on that little armrest console and goes and wears it about 10 minutes later when you've forgotten, uh, or dumped a cup of hot coffee in your lap and down your gun. Uh, sorry, I'm a left-hander. So, right. Well, yeah, there is. Yeah. I those to things. It. Yeah. Um, you know, McDonald's French fry salt in an open emitter. Yeah. Uh, and recently, you know, one of my training buddies and business partners uh, was at a GSSF match and his emitter died on a, a really high end. I won't say that it was a Trigicon, but it was a Trigicon. Uh, well, and that's it, something they're actually known for. The Especially the anodized Gen 2, Type 2, whatever uh-huh. you're calling them, this, the second go-rounds. Um, it was the anodized more than the black ones, but they were having problems with the emitter lens coming undone, flying out of it. And now you've got a diffused beam that's just going everywhere and you don't have that single projectile that you're looking for on the glass. And th- this ended up being the emitter, the emitter didn't actually okay. die. Um, we were having uh, wildfires in Oklahoma and there was this moon dust ash floating around oh, and wow. a particle of it worked its way into the front of the emitter from his range bag to the, to the course of fire. When he picked up his gun to load it and check it and make, get, make ready. All of a sudden it goes out. And what huh. it ended up being was a micro flake of ash, airborne ash that sh- shut it down. And he's like, well, I mean, it was nothing more than, you know, pick it up and blow it off. And, and right. it worked fine. Uh, but it was probably 20 minutes of troubleshooting to figure out that, Hey, just a little piece of particulate had, had shut the show off. Right. And, and that's not a knock at Trigicon. I mean, it, it was just, it's an environmental, you know, we can, we can kind of control gun and ammo and shooter. We can train, but the environmentals are always the wild card. Right. So that was one of the things that lent me more towards Hey, you know, an enclosed emitter when you're when you're working in environmentals that you don't have some degree of uh, predictability with yeah. probably a better idea, but I, yes. Uh, and that's where I, you know, I have 
it's like I'm not a full time cop anymore. I'm not on, not on the street, but I will probably always default look at stuff based on that, based on the amount of time I spent in that world. Um, one of the advantages to an enclosed emitter is I get crap on the back end of it. I can just wipe it off. If I have an open emitter design, I've got to get down there and blow it out, wash it out. Q-tips, a rag, something that will get all the way down into that glass, get into the nooks and crannies of the corners to knock stuff out of there. Right. So, and again, it goes back to the closed emitter being better for that world. And do you see any difference in the, like the MPS and the Acro P2 in that regard? No. Um, on the front end of it, the, the glass is recessed on both of them. Right. So that glass actually sits back behind the front ledge of the housing on the back edge. I can feel the recessant, feel it being recessed, but we're talking maybe like less than a 64th of an inch. Right. Okay. It's, it's not a big gap down in there. I was looking around my office desk to see if my P2 was laying around here. Cause I had never noticed that about the recess on the glass. Not that so I, there, there is a little bit of protection for impact. Um, gotcha. I, was, I was doing a class for Connecticut state police last year and they've got the, the angled armor plate protecting their target bases and doing the malfunction clearances. You know, sure enough, I grab a piece of spent brass off the ground, throw it in the gun for the malfunction clearances. And that locks up like it's probably going to realistically can't clear it by hand. All right. Attack the optic or attack the slide, right. By banging the optic off the armor plate. Well, it's got good gouges in the housing, but that glass was never touched when I did that. So having that little bit of standoff up there helps on that regard. Okay. Let's talk about operational considerations for a minute. Of course, it's got batteries, right? We, yep. we know that batteries die at the most inopportune times. So we can change them that. ahead of time. Right. Right. You wouldn't go to work with a cell phone that you had no idea what the charge was or leave the house with it without the charger. Right. So change it. Um, the knock on the original Acro P1s was battery life that was maybe a month, maybe two as they evolved. Um, now that they've gone to the 2032 battery, they're back to their 50,000 hours. Pick a day during the year. The first January 1st, July 1st, your birthday, your anniversary. Pick one. I don't, I don't care which. And just change the battery. Yeah. You know, the, the Steiner's got a 13,000 hour battery life. All right. If you want to trust that and you want to go to that same date, rock on. If you want to do the first of January and the first of July, do it. Right. Um, the nice thing about the newer generation open emitter optics and so far all of the closed emitter optics is you don't have to pull them off the gun to change the batteries. Right. So just change the batteries. Um, one of you were talking about low light stuff early on. Yeah. So where, where do you set, where do you set the dot? Um, can't recall who I got this from. I know it was when I was first starting to mess with dots back in all of 2012, I ran a Trigicon mm -hmm. on an MMP, um, walked away from it because of reliability issues. And I don't think it was any one company. I just think those optics were meant to be on rifles, not pistols. And we were breaking them too much back then came back to it in 2018. Anyway, somebody had said, for those of you that run weapon mounted lights, go into a room, not with gloss enamel, white walls, but lighter colored walls, turn the pistol light on, point it at the wall, 
adjust the dot to where it's not fully bright, but you can still see it over the pistol light on the wall on the other side of the room. When it's there, it's going to be good enough for you to use in any circumstances. Might it be too bright in a truly dark environment? Yeah, but you're probably going to be turning on a handheld or a weapon mounted light in that environment anyway. Yeah. I, uh, I played around early on when the, uh, uh, the M17, M18 SIGs got released to public market and direct mount for a Delta Point Pro. And I had fits with, with the, the weapon mounted light situation right. because it had an auto adjust emitter. So you could go into a really bright room or a, a, a bright room and yep. okay, it takes the dot a second to kind of catch up. And then I go into pure darkness and it's so bright that all I see is a starburst. And then I flip my weapon mounted light on and it washes the dot completely out. And I was like, okay, these are, these are considerations. Nobody's talking about. We weren't seeing people talk about that as much as we were. This is the new great thing. And it's going to be, it's going to be the best ever. So that's where you're going to get into, right? Like what's causing that auto sensor to work right so are you out in bright light and like we kind of talked about on the pre-show are you out in bright light dealing you know at 10 in the morning dealing with an open door on a business where everything's inside that business or that home all the lights are turned off so now you're out in the bright light looking into the pitch dark trying to figure out what's in there trying to see what's in there and i want to say it was los angeles pd but somebody down that area recently had an officer involved shooting under just those circumstances. All the cops are outside in daylight, bad guys in the dark, and then eventually comes out. Um, and they're picking him up after he's like, as he's leaving the door because he was in the dark. So yeah, it's consideration. How do you deal with that project light in, but that auto sensor is still going to be an issue. And it applies just the same. If you're in the dark, say, you know, in a, in a darkened room, darkened warehouse, dealing with somebody in a lit room, or dealing with somebody outside or vice versa. It's nighttime. You're outside and you're dealing with somebody in an illuminated structure, right? You've got to be aware that that auto sensor is going to cause those issues. That may be why not on a conscious level, but part of one of those things where I gravitated to set the dot where I want it and leave it mm-hmm. and, and don't get into the auto sensor stuff. Yeah. And, at the time I got, I picked that up. That was the optic. The military was entertaining. So it was just yeah. direct mount, take the rear sight plate off, mount it, go. And, and I had no real, real hiccups with it on flat range. You know, the, the training curve was pretty, pretty low. It was a, it was a fairly rugged optic. Uh, I just kept running into when I would start looking into operational aspects of it, there were all these things that I would go, Hey, uh, you know, that, that X 300 really washes that dot out quick. Oh, well, you don't really need the dot at that distance. And I'm like, uh, that's where we're, we're going to have a headache because unsighted fire is not something we do in the, the post 2000 era, yeah. uh, sites are there for a reason. And we use them for that reason. And, and you'll never change my mind on that. So when you turn something on and they go away, that's a big problem to me. Right. Yeah. And there may be times that the optic, you lose the, you lose the dot, the glass gets blocked or whatever, and you got to use some alternative sighting methods, but those should be the rarity, not the norm, right? Like knowing how to, to ghost ring it, 
mm-hmm. right? Using using the the glass as a whole, knowing how to use the 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 optic housing, the top of the optic housing, figuring out which one works for you when you can't see the dot, right? Because the glass is blocked or the dot's gone away. That should be an emergency system, not a planned upon <laughs> sighting system. Yeah. Um, and and on that note, uh, one of the things that came up. I don't know, maybe about a year and a half ago now. Uh, it's kind of what led to me, led to Lee Weems doing a podcast, led to me being on Lee's podcast. Was there, there were a couple instructors out there. I know them. I like them. I have a lot of respect for their material. They were talking about one of the benefits to the dots being that they were going to cut down on mistake of fact shootings because when you were looking at the suspect through the dot, through the optic, right? because you weren't sight focused, you were threat focused, you would be able to see that the wallet they were drawing was a wallet, not a gun. That don't shoot, shoot decision needs to be made before the gun comes on target and you're seeing the dot. Yeah. And that's one of those operational things that you've got to make the decision before you come up and acquire the sighting system. Yeah, completely agree. And, uh, I think with the implementation of, uh, Body cameras now pretty widespread pointing guns at everybody is a thing of the past and it never should have been a thing ever, but we all, all of us that have worked in that space have seen it covering people that don't need guns pointed at them or don't need guns pointed at them at the time you're pointing them out at them. Right. Um, and I'm not going to say I was never guilty of it, but nor am I. The world has changed radically. And if you don't understand just to, to reinforce your thing, that muzzling everybody you deal with when you have a firearm in your hand is a bad idea. Um, most departments, most states are, are mandating that that's getting documented and looked at now. Right. So those 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 ready positions that guys wanted to poo-poo for a couple of years because they weren't fast, right, are actually the smartest way to go because you make – and that's a whole separate topic. That was one of the things I did at TACON this year was – ready positions and better outcomes decision-making wise. That's something so. I've, I've been, uh, I've started to become keenly aware of and tried to, I I've tried to permeate the message yeah. that, Hey, this is, this is an issue that's going to become a fat. Uh, it's going to become a thing soon. Yeah. Uh, better to be in front of it than behind it. Right. Well, I looked up, you know, Oklahoma state statute and it is extremely ambiguous it, you know, that the exemption for pointing a firearm is a, a law enforcement officer in the performance of their duties. That's the only language in the statute right now. It is so wafer thin. I go with body cameras and people seeing that at some point, we're going to, we're going to see a legislative push to either rein that in or redefine it. And yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. That's one of those changes I go because in the performance of my duties could be me going to get a cup of coffee. So does that mean I'm exempted from pointing guns at people? And, you know, and when you temper that with, uh, you know, objective reasonableness, well, that completely violates it. Yeah. Right. I would rather we, we, the profession, we at an agency level, we, the trainers, however you want to look at this, get ahead of it and do it ourselves. Um, last Friday, I spent the whole day in a California post mandated class on 835A of the penal code. That's our use of force section for the state. That's what 
tells us when we get to use force and what the standards for it are. It used that section used to be a paragraph. It's now a page and a half. Yeah. Um, the big statewide employee associations, law enforcement employee associations tried to have a say in it, but there's a lot of really convoluted stuff. And the class is taught on a very tight script from CalPost. And they start out with, we're not telling you what the section means. We're telling you what the section says. And then we're going to have you work through these scenarios and discuss them. Because until we get some case law behind it, which is going to mean cops getting into events, those events outcomes not necessarily being something the public or the criminal justice system likes, them getting prosecuted, them getting charged and convicted, and then going through the appellate process, we're not going to know what the law is, what the law really means the way it's written. That, that's a lot of ambiguity you're hanging your life on. Yes. Um and that's what I've said uh, for a while about uh, some of the statutory language where I where I live is that that's that's pretty pretty ambiguous. It's there's just there's a lot of wiggle room in that, and I would yeah. much rather be the on the side of I didn't point that I didn't cover that person with a muzzle until they presented something that warranted me covering them with a muzzle, right? right if we look into the training doctrines that, you know, I, I'm pretty active in, I go, we shoot from that position in one stage on a qualification and we don't address it as a challenge position. Yeah. Probably something we need to look at. So, um, and, and I've had not had the pushback in talking about that from people like I thought I would, but had I had that conversation 10 years ago, pre body camera, everybody would have said, who cares? Nobody got shot. Yeah. Right. And I've actually seen some agencies that have implemented the pointing of a firearm into their use of force continuum. Yes. And now it's mandatory reporting and a supervisor has to get involved and document it and evaluate it. Uh, And one of the things I saw when carbine optics went mainstream was uh, clearing through the sites or searching through the sites. I think he called it hunting, hunting through the uh, hunting through the television or something where something to that effect. Uh, where people are running guns and eyeballs through an optic and everywhere they look, they're, they're, they're muzzling, right? Yes. Um, and, and I've seen some folks, one group in specific coming over from the military side that are doing a lot of clearing through the optics when they're teaching law enforcement. And I'm not sure that's the best idea and I'm not sure it's going to pan out well for the folks getting that, getting that training if they implement it. Yeah, completely agree. That's a, that's a deep conversation in itself for just the red dot optic topic. Right. But well, so I think it's in line with what we started talking about in regards to the push for speed. Right. If we're, we're strictly going to the competition thing and I'm not saying competition is bad. That's where I was all day. Saturday was shooting a match mm-hmm. pistol match. But if we, we get too close to the speed side and we're not spending enough time on evaluation as that push for speed increases, then we start to cheat the ready positions, right? Like I I can move from here to here in this, in these one hundredths of a second and I'm going to beat the dude. I, 
I got beat by 13 seconds in the match. I was the most accurate shooter in the match. The duty one was 13 seconds ahead of me. Right. The, the next guy, uh, cause I was number three. The next dude, number two was like four seconds ahead of me. Well, the, the guy that won the match, he's a cop oddly enough, but he normally shoots a lot of steel challenge type stuff. So he's a phenomenally fast shooter, but he wasn't the most accurate. Right. So where does that work? When I shot USPSA, my goal was to clean a match with all A zone hits period. Um, and usually I fared pretty well compared to a lot of the really high speed dudes. And I'm like, you know, I didn't fire a miss or a D zone hit that entire match. And you beat me by like 10 seconds. Okay. I'll give it to you. All right. One of the, one of the other drawbacks I, that I've personally seen is a lot of the training that, that comes out of the, the red dot site or the red dot side of the house is all built around presentation and draw to first shot, draw to first shot, draw to first shot. Uh, I have pulled my gun. I cannot tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of times in the line of duty that I never put sights on a bad guy. You know, the position I rarely practiced from bringing the gun up from a low ready and finding the sights on the bad guy. Yep. And especially if we're talking about not muzzling people, right? So working from a legit low ready, uh, I have tried working from a doctorally correct, traditional low ready position, which I could do all day long with iron sights. I cannot acquire the dot consistently coming from that arms extended low ready. Mm -hmm. So I happen to be standing next to a retired Sergeant major from an organization back at Fort Bragg. Um, anyway, I was standing next to Chuck at a, at a training event a couple years ago. And I'm like, Hey, you guys had dots on the guns. Where did you work them from when you weren't in the holster? They weren't running some of these elevated compressed ready positions. What we talked about was working from a low ready with bent arms. Mm-hmm. So if you picture a traditional low ready, break the arms, bend them where those elbows are starting to come back from the torso, hinge the shoulders. So now you raise the gun till the dots in the line of sight. And then as you're picking it up, you're extending it. That's what works for me for managing the low ready with the dot coming up onto target. Now I've one of my closest friends can do it from a legit low ready all day long, a traditional low ready all day long. I just can't do it. Yeah. We work those into the, tr- to the training. We work those into the shoot from the ready position. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I had, uh, this epiphany a few years ago that I couldn't acquire iron sights from a traditional low ready okay. consistently. So what I found was, and I, I felt like I was cheating it, but the reality is it really wasn't a cheat. It was just a workaround. What, uh, was to bend my elbows and bring that last yep. and implement that last quarter of a, uh, a draw to first shot presentation. Right. And I would pick it up faster and, you know, rather than fishing for iron sights at the end of my arms. And then when I transitioned uh, some of my guns to red dots, I was like the same thing. I tried it from a traditional hard arm extended low ready to, uh, I can't find the dot doing that. So if I bend my elbows a little bit, so it's just funny to see that kind of everybody has discovered that on their own a bit, but. Yeah. And it's, it's not everybody has to do it. Right. But there's enough of us that I think you, it's one of those things you got to show both people, right? Right. You got to show both the folks. Um, just like you have to put them into the uncon unconventional, uh, 
uncomfortable, non-traditional positions, right? If we could always be in a situation where we're standing up on both feet in a traditional, what you're taught square range platform, a lot of this goes out the window, but now you're trying to shoot around cover. Now you're trying to shoot around support side cover. Maybe you're on your knee. Maybe you're trying to work underneath something that has to be there in training. Yeah. And, and some of the doc classes where the guys are very upfront about, I am a competitive shooter. I am teaching you how to shoot the dot quickly and get hits. They're not having to work from those positions. So they don't come into their training regimen. Yeah. And if you talk the LE realm, how often do we teach people to shoot from those positions with iron sights? Well, we, we haven't been great at it, but some <laughs> places might throw them in in training. They're not going to be there in the quals, but right place. Some places should be throwing them in training. Yeah. And, and I'm fortunate to work for an agency that does, you know, to, to some degree, uh, force you to shoot from some of those, uh, really awkward positions yep. in, in, in different modes of training. Uh, but widespread, I don't see it. And we're not taking the train like we fight in the way we should. Right. And I'll give you one of the examples. So, you and I both spent time in the convent, the more or less conventional side of, of the military, right? Mm-hmm. What did what did an, an M sixteen M four zero range look like? Did it did it look like squad designated marksman where you were out there learning how to shoot, or was it throw on every piece of TVA fifty and soft armor that your organization could make you wear, and then try to put you in a prone stable position in order to zero because somebody was screaming, usually a sergeant major, train like you fight. Right. right. No, we're teaching dudes how to shoot. We're trying to make sure that the gun and their eyeballs are, are working together in the same place. Let's get that accomplished and then start layering in the other stuff. Let's take guys, show them how to do some of these other weird positions and then start layering everything else in on top of it. Which thankfully 20 years of sustained combat ironed out a lot of those problems. Um, yeah. Yeah, I went back to Fort Bragg about three years ago and I saw how those dudes were, you know, in garrison operations, um, we're a little more commonsensical about it. And, uh, you know, some guys laying out doing rifle marksmanship. When I was in the army, if you were firing a rifle, you had better be prone. And I was like, this is, this is kind of asinine. I'm not going to stop and hit my knees to just to shoot a rifle. Like but, yeah, micro terrain and vegetation and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, there was some cringe moments even for me in my young uh, younger era, but I had grown up around cops, you know, cops that had shot carbines. And those were the dudes that taught me how to, how to shoot. And I go to the army and it's archaic. And I'm like, like, guys, there's a whole nother level here. You're missing, but Hey, uh, I need to have my TA 50 and my Kevlar on when I'm trying to hit a 33 meter zero target. What? Uh, yeah. So there was a lot of that. Um, and I can get, back to red dots. Uh, when I was in the army, we would take the M 68 CCO optic off of the M four immediately after the zero range. So we could put them in the racks that didn't fit with the, and I'm like, we just defeated a whole day's worth of work here in, you know, one turn of a wrench. Yeah. And they could not grasp the concept. It it was, yeah, that was my time running. When I went back into the guard um, before my unit's deployment to Iraq, 
Um, I'd been running red dots at work for probably four years. So I had a little bit of an idea about using them. This I'm talking on a rifle. And it was certainly an interesting argument with some folks and what we knew worked and what had filtered down to the LE world versus, because by then I'd taken carbine classes from Pat Rogers um, versus what was presumed by big army. Mm-hmm. So um, you going back to the dots on the pistols, you had brought up low light. When I run a Harry's technique or I run an FBI technique, right? So up over the head, whatever, not an issue. doesn't really matter to me where the dot, where, where the dot on the pistol is. If I go to use one of the jaw techniques with the pistol mounted light, the problem that I run into is I'm lighting up the back of the slide, lighting up the back of the optic. Right. And the fix for this has been just move it up to where the eyepiece on your glasses is. And now you're actually projecting the dot over and down to a degree. Right. I'm sorry, not projecting the dot, projecting the handheld light over the optic and down to a degree. So you're not, it's not for me at least. And for students, it hasn't doing it that way. doesn't interfere with the optic. Okay. Yeah. That was, uh, and I don't remember where the, the, the proper name for the, you know, the, basically the cheek index or the jaw index with the light. I don't remember all the, who created it, whatever technique. I remember the Harry's technique really well because the first five years I was a cop, weapon mounted lights weren't a thing except on it. And that was the way you shot. And, uh, we kind of lost some of that for a while. Um, and I'm glad to see it's kind of back on the uptick again. Uh, and the older I get, the less use I have for a weapon mounted light. And I have way more confidence in a a handheld light, which 25 year old me was like, man, I need a light on my gun. So when I'm searching a building, I can, you know, as we mature, we go, go guilty. I, I went to narcs right around the time I was able to get my hands on a surefire six volt classic and a safari land holster that would support it on my 1911. Um, You're dating yourself by the way. Oh, wait till I talk about nitro on lights and Dawson rails, right? Which are only a little bit newer. Uh, but yeah, you know, we, we didn't think about that. And then what you start to realize is you're working patrol. It, it's 10 o'clock at night, six in the morning, whatever you, the lights in your hand, you're going to be in that handheld light position. If, if the event goes sideways and goes to guns, you're going to be in that handheld light position, at least for the first part of that shooting before you can get rid of, get the, get the pistol light on, get the handheld light out of the hands, get both hands on the gun. So you probably ought to know how to do a lot of the handheld stuff. And we missed that for some years Yeah, because the handheld, because the weapon mounted light was the A answer for everything. And oddly enough, I used the weapon mounted light less when I worked night shift than I did when I worked day shift. And I used the handheld techniques far more than I used uh, a weapon mounted light. And when I tell people that they're like, yeah, but you were a graveyards night shift officer for half your career. How, how did that happen? Um, it was way more convenient. It, it just lent itself to the the situation way more often. And when handheld lights became truly handheld and not crew served lights, right. Um, that changed dramatically for me. So on that, 
the weapon mounted light with a red dot. That seems to be the, the thing now, right? I got a weapon mounted light. I got a red dot. I've got some, you know, gargantuan spotlight hanging off the end of my gun. What type of considerations operationally are there with the weapon mounted light and the red dot in conjunction? We talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. So uh, I use the weapon mounted light to adjust the dot too, right? So find that not white wall, right? That light colored wall from across the room, illuminate it with the pistol light, adjust the dot to where I can see it over over the light, right? As long as it's not blown up all the way and blooming. Um, we're still going to run into not muzzling people with it. We're still going to run into the issue of you're not searching. You're not making decisions through the optic. And the good news is with the output on the lights, especially, you know, with the mod light pistol light that's out there, cloud defense has got theirs coming. Surefire's got their X 300 turbo coming, you know, which is already in some guy's hands, but it's, it's coming to, to, you know, retail at some point soon those lights are going to give you more than enough spill that you can work from legit low ready positions because of the light, the periphery of the light to tell you what's in the waistband, to tell you what's in the hands. And if you have to start creeping up with it or you're using the handheld to do the work, right? You're going to be able to see everything you need to see until the don't shoot, shoot decision till that switch gets made. Um, Interesting. Yeah. As long as you're taking into consideration that we're not trying to assess the problem through the optic, I think the process works the same. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, first weapon mounted light I had was an M3 uh, halogen, and it had a lot of spill, and it was a very handy light. And when the the high-powered LEDs started coming out, I... It, it was a while before I transitioned because there wasn't so enough spill right. that I could search that without searching through sites. Um, <laughs> funny backstory, a couple of, uh, couple of adjuncts from an agency. I won't mention when the X 200 came out and it had that triangular, that diamond shape beam. That's where I was going to go next, but yeah, I'm, I'm standing in a classroom with the lights out and we're checking the spill and some different stuff. And one guy takes the light. He has his, his gun locked back and points it at the wall. It goes, look at that. And another guy steps in front of the light, step standing off the end of his muzzle and goes, you don't even need sights. Look, it puts this triangle right in the right spot. And I go, you're like pointing a gun at him, bro. That's not cool. And, uh, I can laugh about it 15 years later at the time everybody else was laughing about it and I was going big red flag. Don't do that. No, yeah. no bueno. Um, but that was like a big, I won't say it was a sales pitch from the manufacturer, but it was certainly one of the considerations that some of the guys that were searching through sites, maybe, uh, maybe felt was a benefit, but, uh, anyway. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I remember surefire talking about it at the time, but I, I don't remember a lot about it. Um, but yeah, it was pretty quick that they came out with some variation of the X200 that didn't have the diamond-shaped beam on it. Yeah, and, and I don't know that that was a an intentional act as so much it was a technological feature that just some cops got real creative with. Went, oh, look at that, you know? Yeah, I think that was a bug, not a feature, rather than the other way around. Exactly. Um, but either way, uh, so back to red dots here for a minute. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> what we With, keep segueing off <laughs> tangents what well you are on hanny's podcast and he says he's <laughs> yeah. a specialist in rabbit holes so this holds true even though i'm hosting the show today right no. uh, anyway we've we've talked some of the pros and cons open emitter closed emitter uh weapon mounted lights handheld lights um in a perfect world what would be your perfect i hate to say perfect but your um what would be the system you would want whether it's maybe currently in existence or maybe not uh for how to attach a red dot optic would it be open emitter or closed emitter and uh would you want plates suppressor like what is your red dot solution I would want it, if at all possible, closed emitter, universal, built to the slide. Um, like it comes, so SIG's trying to be like a one-stop solution, but this would be a one-stop solution where it is seamless from the slide to the optic, right? The optic is part of the slide itself. It's not attached to, bolted onto. Um, like I said, enclosed emitter, so that everything's secure. The only thing I got to do is mess with the battery. Barring that, I would like to see the industry standardize on footprints. Um, and just for commonality, I would say the Acro footprint and the Trigicon footprint. And if you could find a way to put both of those on the slide, or you have a slide that shows up from the factory specific to the acro footprint or the trigicon footprint now shadow systems has done some stuff like that both glock and smith have skews for slides pre-cut for the acro that are agency only purchases right now um allegedly well yeah allegedly <laughs> right i don't have one i don't have one from either company even though i know they exist I, so i would want an enclosed emitter on a factory cut slide for that footprint preferably being an acro p2 um 2032 battery because it is hitting the fifty thousand hour mark and it's the most common of the stuff out there i can use it in my rifle i can use it in either the trigicon or the acros um i would want probably a rectangular-ish window like you see on the acro or like you see on the mps rather than a gumby shaped whatever kind of shape that trigicon calls theirs and i'm not bagging on it, i just tombstone shape um i would prefer something a little bit more rectangular glass recessed at both ends so there's like a protective housing on it maybe almost a sacrificial housing like kale's got come out with a tango down for the acros um yeah, that would that would probably be what I'd be looking at. The one drawback to building your slide with the optic as part of it is if the optic goes down, then you're on a whole new slide. Mm-hmm. But I'd still, I think, would like to see that 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 be the ultimate goal. Um, and everything built, cut down into, built down into the slide, so that I don't have to replace the sights. I don't have to throw suppressor height sights on it. I don't have to do anything else. I can use the stock the sites that we're traditionally comfortable with height wise Mm -hmm. because of how that interacts with duty holsters, concealed carry holsters, et cetera. Perfect. Now the final question I have for you on the, the, the red dot thing, what is your preferred site setup? And I'm not talking height. I'm talking 
tritium front, fiber optic front, blacked out front, serrated, you know, Her- Harrison have- inlaid gold bead, whatever. Most of mine are blacked out. Or they have a little bit of like nail polish on them just to differentiate them color wise. Um, I've got two pistols set up with cut by ATI for the the aim point acros. So they come with the shim sight. Right. So they've got an Ameriglow custom front sight that's a little bit bigger, taller than a normal one. And then they're that folded piece of sheet metal that's blacked out okay. for the rear sight. Um I'm not going to mess around with drift adjusting, right? If that dot's not there, I either see a front sight and I start to shoot to end the threat, or I will go to one of the other methods. And mine generally is ghost ringing the whole optic unless it's blocked. And then I'll go optic shape. Okay. So uh, the reason I brought that up, uh, the, uh, my North Carolinian brother, Michael, uh, he discovered something uh, with, shooting dots that I thought was pretty ingenious. Uh, now he's like a engineer by background and I pick up one of his, uh, like a shadow systems or something that he was running mm-hmm. and he likes fiber optic front sights cause he works in the daylight a lot. So that's just what he lends to. And, and he's the guy that knows how to change them and, and maintain them, right? Puts them incorrectly. Yeah. Puts them incorrect. He watched the Langdon video. Thanks, Ernest, for permeating that to the whole world so we don't see fiber optics flying ever. Anyway, uh, I pick up one of his dot guns. It's got a red dot, and it's got a green front sight. And I went, uh, "What? why'd you do that? He goes, if it's red, it's a dot. If it's green, it's sights. And I went, I never really, I never really put that much effort into thinking about yeah. it. And he said, when I was learning the dot, he said, I had a red fiber optic front light pipe on the front sight. And I found that I was constantly finding that before I was finding a dot. And he said, I put the green in and the next thing you know, I I pick up the dot. Right. So, so interesting point on that false dots where usually this is going to be a sun thing. Like you're shooting towards the direction of the sun at all, right? You can get the false dots on some of the optics. What I have found is try just a slight lateral shift on the gun. The false dot is the dot that stays static. Your real dot moves. Huh? See, these are things I don't hear about. So guy by the name of George Mandy's, um, he's good friends with Daryl. Oh yeah. George was the first one that mentioned it. Where I saw this was a couple of our ranges at Gunsight are east to west orientation. About 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, the sun's come far enough over that it's now starting to appear in front of the, well, on the backside of the target line, right? So that's where we'll guys will start talking about seeing that second dot. And it was just messing with it myself. Just And for whatever reason, I gave it a shift and I'm like, oh, the false dot stayed in the same spot. The real dot's the one that moved. So with that, was that on an open emitter or closed? That was on an open emitter. I haven't found it on. I haven't had it happen to me on a closed. I've only found it on the open. Perfect. Well, what's coming up on the uh, horizon for Cougar Mountain Solutions? Um, So Cougar Mountain side, I'm going to, there's a new indoor range in Stockton. I'm going to be teaching an introductory red dot class there. Want to say Friday, August 12th. Um, then 
the, the Thunderstick Summit, the shotgun, the shotgun roundup yeah. in Dallas, the weekend of September 9th. I've got low light instructor classes uh, for law enforcement in Southern California and Connecticut in October and November. Uh, also, we've got a high risk stops, both pedestrian and vehicle class back in Connecticut in November. Uh, in terms of gun sight, I'm leaving tomorrow to fly down there to teach our general pistol class with the red dot curriculum. I'll be down there towards the end of the month in the next month to teach the intermediate pistol with the red dot curriculum. And then I'm doing like a three and a half week stint down there into September into October. Do an intermediate pistol, advanced pistol, the alumni shoot and helping to teach an instructor development class. And that's going to at this point, that's going to take me through the end of the year between my company and Gunsight. Nice. Well, there are openings there if people are interested. Well, <laughs> I'm interested when you're coming to Oklahoma to put on a uh, red dot, uh, red dot course. I keep hearing uh, farts in the wind. Is that the right word? No. Um, <laughs> I keep hearing rumors whispers. that people whispers. Right. We'll go with the whispers. Um, that that people are interested in bringing me back there. I just there hasn't kind of been any follow through. Um, I, I'd love to come back there. I mean, one, th- there's some really good people back there. I right know even that, even that David dude. Yeah. Um, but two, I really want to come back there and see what we can do with it. Yeah. I'm interested in, uh, in, uh, jumping into one of your, your red dot classes when that, uh, happens. And I'm going to make some phone calls tomorrow and see what we can do about that for next year. Cool. So I'm game. All right, Eric. Well, thanks again for coming on. Hey, thank you. Uh, just real quick, yeah, Cougar Mountain ahead. Solutions can be found on Instagram at Cougar underscore Mountain underscore Solutions and on Facebook in the normal way. Uh, the website's still a work in progress, but it's CougarMountainSolutions.com slash blog right now if you're trying to find it. Perfect. I'll uh, I'll throw those up on the uh, the podcast page here in a bit. And I guess people can get, get you there if they want to host you for a host you in for a class and Absolutely. Um, and then AmericanCop.com is the magazine side too. Yeah. Really great. Before we sign off, really great kudos on the 1911-2011 thumb safety speech. Uh, uh, thank you. Because we have a generation of cops that don't understand what that archaic flappy piece on the side of the gun does. Right. And the springy thing on the back, which may be a pending article. Uh, and I ju- it just dropped today driving and shooting just because we can doesn't mean we should oh even better love it tune into american cop and uh and we'll talk to you soon eric as always gal house is back everybody drink right <laughs> reminder check out our sponsors ksg armory maker of fine kydex holsters Made in the USA, too. Up there in Colorado. I hear some of them guys up there are pretty good at making holsters. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, Jeez, I lost my train of thought there for a second. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, 
or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.